and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. When it comes to Native American heritage, most Americans have woefully inadequate knowledge. They may have heard of Squanto or Sacagawea, but that is the extent of their understanding. A 2018 research project conducted by the First Nations Development Institute and Echo Hawk Consulting found that most Americans think there aren't many Native Americans left in the country, which just isn't true. There are close to 600 federally recognized tribes in the United States. November is Native American Heritage Month, so we want to introduce you to some Native authors to add to your TBR all year long, including our guest today, who is a new voice in fiction. Our guest this week is Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle, a member of the Eastern Tribe of Cherokee Indians who's deeply rooted in the Cherokee community in North Carolina. She's been a high school English and Cherokee studies teacher for the past 10 years, but she's also a novelist whose debut historical fiction novel, Even As We Breathe, was published this past September by a new literary imprint called Fireside Industries, a collaboration between the Appalachian Writers Workshop and the University Press of Kentucky. Annette talks to us about the James Baldwin quote that inspired her to write about a clean bone, which has significance in her writing practice as well as her novel, what things she learned from her editor, well-known Kentucky author Silas House, and how she wants to use her influence of being a Cherokee novelist to educate the wider public that Native Americans are something very different from what they see in old westerns and popular culture. Our guest today is Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle, who is a debut novelist, a high school English and Cherokee studies teacher who lives in North Carolina. We are very happy to have you, Annette. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you grew up. So I grew up where I currently live now, which is just outside of Cherokee, North Carolina, technically Kuala, North Carolina. I was born and raised here. After high school, I went to Yale University for my undergraduate and then on to the College of William and Mary for my graduate degree. I was in American Studies at both colleges and returned home to Cherokee after graduate school. And so I've worked for our principal chief. I've worked at the Cherokee Preservation Foundation as an executive director. But most substantially, I have been a public school teacher at Swain County High School, where I teach English and Cherokee studies. So I've been a teacher for over 10 years now in that school. We live just below the house that I grew up in. So I'm, I'm pretty deeply rooted in this Cherokee community. Is Cherokee study something that's taught in a lot of the schools there or just yours? No. Cherokee Central Schools, of course, has Cherokee studies programs. Theirs are actually a little bit more expansive than ours are. But we have about 30% of our student population is Cherokee. So 
we try to meet those needs uh, with a partnership with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. And so I teach the history and culture section and I team teach with a native speaker or a Cherokee linguist sometimes. So I don't teach the Cherokee language portion because that might be disastrous. (laughs) (laughs) But I get to work with a fluent speaker to do that. In years that are not COVID, this has ruined everything (laughs) this year. But So what was your reading life like as a kid? Were you a big reader? Looking back, I was trying to think about that what I was reading early on. And I, you know, I loved Beverly Cleary. And I remember reading the the Babysitter's Club's books. <laughs> but there were always books in my house. And my parents would read to me growing up. I can still picture this big chair that was in my bedroom that I would sit on my mom's lap and she would read. Uh, that's the memory I have. Now, as a mom myself, I know the reality probably wasn't as perfect as as I've held on to because I, I know that there are nights in my own household where I just tell my kids, no, just go to bed. Just go to bed. I can't read to you. But there are always books available. I never wanted for that. And I actually would write little stories myself from as far back as I can remember. So it's kind of always been part of my life. I know for myself, I'm a certified teacher. I don't teach full time, but I know that when I was teaching full time, you just don't have a whole lot of time to read for pleasure. Mm-hmm. So are you able to read just for fun for yourself now? And if so, what type of books are you drawn to? Yeah, um, it is very difficult during the school year for me to read for pleasure. Most of my reading is you know during summer or winter break. And so a lot of times I'm rereading what I'm teaching in class. But I have been trying my best to read as much as possible, especially since, you know, with the new book, I've been doing some events with some other authors and I want to make sure that I've read their work. So I've been reading a lot of Appalachian authors and native writers as well. Carter Sickles, The Prettiest Star, I recently finished. I do a couple of things during the school year to make sure that I'm reading new literature. I'll listen to a lot of books on tape when I exercise or when I'm driving, I much prefer a hard copy of a book, but just to make sure that I'm staying in the loop with what's coming out, a lot of times I'll listen to um, books on tape. And then I started doing this a little bit last year, reading more short story collections, Mm -hmm. like Leia Hampton's short story collection that's out right now. And I don't know if I can say the title, but it is fabulous. And so I'll read short story collections or poetry collections. And that way, I can pick it up and put it down the time I have between reading for class. Yeah, that's something I've started doing too. We had Ellen Burkett Morris on recently and she has a short story collection out and I loved it so much. And I thought I need to read more short stories because you can read just little chunks at a time. You don't feel like, you know, you have to make this big time commitment. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about your trajectory to becoming a writer. So you had written a first novel manuscript called Going to Water, and that won several awards between 2012 and 2014. And it was even a finalist for the Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. Tell us a little bit about that manuscript. So I started writing that maybe when I was in college, just the concept of it. My grandfather, his name is Osley Bird Sanuk, he was two-term chief for our tribe. 
and also a world heavyweight wrestling champion. And he ran a gift shop in Cherokee. So he was a real character. And I've grown up my whole life hearing outlandish stories about him to the point where I knew I could never write about his life in a nonfiction sense. I've had a lot of people ask me to write his biography in a sense, but I know that I can't do it because the stories about him are just tall tales. He was literally (laughs) a tall man, like he was a big man. And so I've heard all kinds of estimations as to how big he was, none of which are true probably. So I, I wanted to fictionalize his character though i was really interested in what it would be like to be a literal chief for our tribe and to run this sovereign nation of the eastern band during a period where there wasn't the economic opportunities that we have now and then also to juxtapose that with his very commercialized public life of being a pro wrestler and so pro wrestling for him was right on that edge of real wrestling and then what we know today of professional wrestling, which was highly performative. And so that novel was kind of based on his life, but definitely fiction. I took lots of liberties. And because it was a first novel manuscript, as you can imagine, went through a lot of revisions. And when I was a finalist for the Penn Bellwether, I was really optimistic that surely this would lead to finding an agent or maybe even publication. But it was a pretty heartbreaking process. In the end, I just had to shelve it and just move on to another project because I just couldn't find a home for it. Mm -hmm. We've heard that similar story from some other authors. And I think people are not aware how hard it is sometimes to, Mm -hmm. to get published initially. So you have moved on, though. You continue to write. So you have a debut novel out called Even As We Breathe, and it was just released, I think, in September. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that book and how you got that one published? So Even As We Breathe is set in 1942. Of course, that's during World War II. And the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, which is a high-class resort in Asheville, North Carolina, held access diplomats and foreign nationals as prisoners of war. And so the novel is set partly there and partly in Cherokee, North Carolina. My protagonist, County, is a 19-year-old young man from Cherokee who goes to work at the Grove Park Inn that summer. And he's joined by Essie, another uh, Cherokee young woman who goes to work there as well. And while County is at the Grove Park, he is accused of being involved in the disappearance of a diplomat's daughter. So he's dealing with clearing his name in that respect, and then also back home, really trying to unravel the mystery of his family. His father died really at the tail end of, of World War I, and his mother died shortly after he was born. So County's been raised by his grandmother and his uncle, and he's really trying to sort through those relationships and decide what he wants to do with the rest of his life. And of course, there's a little bit of a love interest story as well going on. As I mentioned, I had shelved the other one and I needed something new. And so I took a class through the Great Smokies Writers Program in Asheville, North Carolina that UNCA hosts, and took a class with Heather Newton, an author there, 
And the, the name of the class was Get Her Done, Write Your Novel. <laughs> I was like, that, is, that sounds just cheesy enough for me. I'm going to do it. So <laughs> it was a great distraction, but it also gave me this wonderful format that fit my lifestyle. As I mentioned, and we were talking about being a teacher, I don't have large swaths of time to sit down and, and write. And, you know, I know that's true of a lot of different professions. So the way the class set up the assignments, we had to write a synopsis of the novel. We had to write the first chapter and last chapter and a climax chapter. And of course, we were workshopping all of these pieces. And to write a synopsis of a novel is the hardest thing, in my opinion, whether you do it at the beginning or the end. But it gave me the framework I needed that when I had short periods of time that I could write, I knew exactly where I was going in that time frame. And so that was incredibly beneficial to me. You know, and of course, I'd learned lessons from the first manuscript of what I wanted to be sure to do right the second time. To make a long story short, in terms of publication, I was fortunate enough to attend the Appalachian Writers Workshop at Heinemann Settlement School. And yeah, I was workshopping this novel, was having conversations with the instructors and, and other writers there about it. I come to know Silas House and Rebecca Gale Howe while there. Coincidentally, Heinemann Settlement School was starting an imprint with University Press of Kentucky, and it, it hadn't even been announced yet, really. It was in the process, and Rebecca Gale Howe was helping to lead that process, and she sat down with me, I remember, in the dining hall at Heinemann and said, I, I've heard about what you're writing. I'd like to see it. And I thought she was being nice <laughs> because everybody's really nice at Heinemann. And I said, oh, okay, great. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to share it with you. She said, no, can you email it to me tonight? So I sent it to her. I got a call from her. I was at my son's youth basketball games. I was in a noisy gym and I see on my phone that she's calling. So I just rush outside and she asked me if I would be interested in having University Press of Kentucky publish the novels. So for those who may not know, what is the Heinemann Settlement School? So the Heinemann Settlement School is, is located in Heinemann, Kentucky. They offer several different types of programs, and I'm not an expert on all of their programs. My participation with Heinemann has been in regards to the Appalachian Writers Workshop, which is a workshop they offer every summer for writers in the Appalachian region or who have ties to Appalachia. And they offer different types of writing workshops. So you can apply in, in different categories like novel, short story, poetry, nonfiction. And it's kind of a traditional workshop in the sense that you're meeting during the week with your workshop and your reading pieces and critiquing, but you're also getting instruction from some of the best writers in the country and there's other enrichment opportunities throughout the week with speakers coming in and, and things like that but it is a phenomenal community of writers i've only been 
connected with Heinemann for the past three years or so and have made some of the closest friends I have and certainly writer friends that I have. I talk to people connected with the Appalachian Writers Workshop every single day for something or another. It is the most welcoming place I've ever been and the most supportive of the writers connected. How long did it take you then to begin writing it through publication? Mm, Three to four years, I think. Okay. I'm really bad with timelines. Of course, that's not consistently. That's starting to write and then trying Mm -hmm. to live life and, and then coming back to it. It was a much faster process than the first one because I knew where I was going. And then the editing, it feels like a really quick process. I was fortunate enough to have Silas House as my editor, and we worked so well together. We were both very much deadline-driven, and his process is phenomenal as an editor. He was just really easy to work with. So I'm a big Silas House fan, read all of his books, and I didn't even know that he was an editor for the University of Kentucky. So that's very, very cool. He's, you know, near and dear to many people's hearts here in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering what piece of advice that he gave you that meant the most? Well, this, I believe, is editorial debut for a novel, if I remember correctly. So it's not surprising you didn't know that. You know, this is a piece of advice that I keep saying in my own classes. So I think it must be, you know, one of the most important that stuck with me. He would often ask when we were talking about the tension of a scene, he would say, what is the trouble? What is the trouble? And I've never really heard it put that way. And I don't know if that is his own creation or if he has heard it from someone else. But when we were looking at making sure that scenes served a purpose, that they were moving the plot forward, that they were engaging for the reader, he would repeat that phrase, what is the trouble? And I think that that's what moves us through a narrative. So I definitely took that away with me. And then just kind of in general, in terms of editing, just stripping the language down as clean as possible without sidelining imagery, but how you provide a line for the reader that makes them feel that, that it is an active process for the reader. So that's another thing that I take into my classroom. I keep telling them that reading is a physical experience. And they're still looking at me like I'm crazy because they think <laughs> all in your head. But it really is. I think that's something that just stuck with me after working with Silas about how physical the experience can be for a reader and, and wanting to make sure that comes through. So was your book part of that new imprint? It was. It was So Fireside Industries is the new imprint. And so it was one of the first ones they published. So with the the story in Even As We Breathe, you know, sometimes for writers, it's just an idea that pops in their head, but sometimes it's inspired by people they know or things they've heard. So what was the case for this novel? I had seen an article in the Asheville Citizen Times or newspaper, and it was talking about how the Biltmore House in Asheville had safeguarded really important artwork during World War II. And then there was just like a little paragraph about the history of the Grove Park Inn and how they had held these 
Axis diplomats and foreign nationals. And I had never heard that before, was really interested in that, and then did a little bit more research and found out that other resorts in the Southeast had done similar things. I had that in my brain when I was really struggling to decide what I was going to write next after that first novel. I had given myself a writing prompt to write about something as long as I could. And I wanted to pick an object that seemed very simple that I would push myself to really dig into my writing. And I had selected to write about a clean bone and how long I could write about a clean bone. And part of that is because I keep a quote uh, by James Baldwin that says to write a sentence as clean as a bone. And I think that's probably why I chose that object. So I, I had this piece I'd written about a bone and I had the concept of the real history of the Grove Park. And then what I really like to do is turn up the heat when I've got a setting like that and take this Cherokee character and put him in the middle of it and see what happens. So when I know that I'm dealing with a situation that's tense anyway, because you've got foreign nationals and diplomats specifically, now prisoners essentially, during wartime, let's complicate that even more and bring an individual who has inherent rights to the land, but still has all these complications in regards of citizenship and military service and everything. One of the things that's interesting about Native American history in this country is that it took so long for Native Americans to, be to become citizens and even longer for states to really recognize their voting rights. Additionally, during World War II, some in Japanese internment camps were set up on reservations out west, which, you know, is full of irony. So, it, you know, there was not one clear line to writing this narrative, but all those pieces seem to come together at once and make sense to me because I'm always interested in talking about the confluence between Native history and American history, and then more specifically, how it relates to today. You know, I hope that even though this book is set in 1942, that there are some takeaways for 2020. So you are an enrolled member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee, and mm -hmm. your book's two main characters, County and Essie, are both of Cherokee heritage, just like you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think I read that you're the first member of the Eastern Band of Cherokees to be a published author. So I'm wondering, tell us a little bit what it means to be a member of the EBCI, and did you have inspiration for those two characters? It's difficult to describe what it's like to be a member of a community if you've grown up in that community. You know, sometimes you need to step outside and get a little perspective. So sometimes I struggle with this question. For me, it's always been about growing up in a small, tight-knit community, much like a lot of communities in Appalachia. But there's also this element of knowing that your culture has been here for tens of thousands of years and that there's an inherent knowledge in your community about this place. And so the Eastern Band, for those who are not familiar with that history, is a direct result of the split between the greater Cherokee nation during Indian removal 
under Andrew Jackson primarily, the Cherokees, along with some other tribes, were forced west to Oklahoma on what most people know as the Trail of Tears. The Eastern Band, those ancestors of ours that make up the Eastern Band today, either hid out in our mountains, negotiated different land deals with local whites or the federal government, or in some cases even returned from Oklahoma. So after Indian removal, we were able to rebuy our own land Mm. and eventually have it held in trust. It's known as the Kuala Boundary today. So it's held in trust by the federal government. So one of the things that makes, I think, my upbringing unique, in addition to all, you know, all the cultural aspects that come with the Native community, is that my fascination with federal policy, because we are a sovereign nation, so we always deal with the federal government. You know, that's an experience that's certainly unique. Most other communities are used to working with county or state government and how that looks. But it's made me a real student of federal policy, I think. That's one of the things I really liked about your book was that I learned so much. I didn't really know the history, like what you just explained. So I'm glad that you explained it to us about why some are in Oklahoma and why there's still some in Cherokee, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed that about your book. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there are three federally recognized tribes as a result of removal. There's the Eastern Band, uh, where I from, and then Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, and also the United Gadua Band of Oklahoma. Those are the three federally recognized Cherokee tribes. So I also wanted to say that I am the first published novelist, and not the first published author that I know of, but there has not been a novelist from the Eastern Band before, which is shocking and sad, and I hope that I will not be the only one for very long. Right. Well, you know, your book has so much history in it. And I'm wondering when you're writing historical fiction, how do you balance how much of the history to use to make your story ring true versus your own vision of how the story needs to proceed? Mm -hmm. I think it's something that I struggle with a lot. And I would say a lot of Native authors feel similar about this. Most people in this country are very much unaware of Native American history. A lot of people don't even know we still exist. So there has to be an element in some way of education. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm not writing a history book. And so, you know, I keep reminding myself that the narrative is the most important, that anyone can pick this up and be engaged in the narrative. So I try to think about what part of our culture and history is essential to the narrative, to really understanding what I'm trying to say through the narrative. And then, you know, working with Silas on the edits for the book would add in more education for readers uh, in that process because I had an outside perspective and Silas would say, you probably need to explain this a little bit more to the readers so they understand. It really is a back and forth process, but I try to remember that the narrative is the most important. And a lot of times, you know, our history feeds that. The juxtapositions that come up in the book of how these cultures interact. And a lot of times just the irony of what it is to be the first people of this land and 
American citizens. It really opens up opportunities for irony, I think. Mm-hmm. So you served as the executive director of the Cherokee Preservation Foundation for several years. So obviously finding ways to keep the Cherokee culture alive and thriving is important to you. So how does writing fit into that or does mm-hmm. it? Yeah, it does. I think everybody has a role within their community to play. If you're talking about a native community, we all have a role to play in cultural preservation. You know, I'm not of a family that produces these fluent speakers. I did not grow up in terms of some of our traditional practices, but I've really come to realize that writing has given me the opportunity to provide a resource for our community and to share with other communities what is important about being Cherokee. I've really been pleased with the opportunities my writing has given me to talk about what it is to be Eastern Band Cherokee and to give other people in my community the opportunity to share their own voices as well. You know, little things from writing an an op-ed for a magazine and they need photographs. Well, there are some fantastic photographers in Cherokee. So if I can connect their work to a broader audience, then I want to do that. As a teacher, I think I'm pretty adept at translating difficult material to a broader audience. And so I try to do that through my writing in terms of Cherokee culture, who we really are, not who might have been pictured on old movies and and Westerns and and things like that. So I guess I kind of consider myself a translator in a lot of ways. Anand, I'm curious about being both a a teacher of English and having the experience as executive director of the Cherokee Preservation Foundation. I'm a freelance writer Mm -hmm. and teach English. And so I feel like that experience makes me a better teacher because I've had people constructively and sometimes not so constructively critique my work. So do you feel like these things help you in your day-to-day work with with high school students? Absolutely. It has actually transformed my teaching in a lot of ways. The last three years now of teaching, I have included my process as a writer into my class. Everything from, you know, when I go to writing workshops, I bring back those different prompts or activities and use them for my students, but also just being really honest with my students about what I am going through as a writer. You know, I look back a a couple of years ago, and if you talk to those former students, they'll tell you about the struggle. I would get an email at school. I would know the sender was an agent, for example, that I had queried. So I would just tell my students, I have an email in my inbox. I haven't read it yet. I know it's from an agent. I'm going to read it to you. And so they would go through that emotional roller coaster with me and hear what an agent would say in terms of feedback. And then on into the the next class that got to hear when uh, I was offered a, a publishing contract and what that process was like and how many revisions I went through. And so I think most importantly, my students get to learn that when I ask them to do a revision, they shouldn't sweat it because they've seen so many that, you know, that I've had to do. And I've just been so pleased with 
how supportive they are of that process. And when this book came out, last year's class just has been phenomenal about sending me pictures when they got the book and they're reading it with some of their groups on campus. So I think it's been really enriching for me and for them to see what this world is like, even if they don't want to be writers, to see the value of the process because everything has a process. And I bet you're also inspiring some writers. I mean, a lot of times I think kids, if they don't see somebody in a particular career or role, think that maybe it's not possible for them. But you're you're modeling it. You know, your book just came out. And so maybe you're taking a huge breather. But are you working on something new now? I do not feel like I'm taking a huge breather. <laughs> in the opposite. But I, I'm trying to work on, on something right now. I've, you know, it's been such a crazy year with COVID and school has been very challenging and finding ways to teach this way. But I, I'm trying to plug along on my next novel is actually set in a contemporary period. I haven't nailed down the exact year yet. And there's always a question of pre or post COVID now. So <laughs> So I'm thinking about that, but is going to be set in Cherokee. And I've really always loved our traditional Cherokee stories, some of our origin stories, not just for their plot line, but more so how their values translate to understanding our world today. And so what I'm doing is taking some of our core Cherokee stories and extracting those values and themes that come out of them and applying them to a more modern narrative about a Cherokee woman. I think she's in her 30s. And some challenges she has with both being Cherokee and then how Cherokee politics intercedes and challenges what identity is, what it is to be Eastern Band Cherokee. When you were growing up, is there written down Cherokee literature or is it mainly an oral? So it started out, of course, as a oral tradition of storytelling. We are pretty unique in that in 1821, a Cherokee man named Sequoia developed a written language for us. So You'll see that some native languages take their oral language and phonetically translate it into like English characters throughout it. But we actually have our own system of syllabary since 1821. Um, and so a written recording of Cherokee stories is pretty significant in, uh, compared to other tribes, for example. And then we also have those, those lovely ethnographers who've come in over the course of our history and recorded stories. Now, the fun part of that is, did people in Cherokee tell them truthful stories or did they mess with them a little bit? Because you basically you have these old white dudes that come in and they're like, wanting to know all your secrets. So, so we have a great <laughs> sense of humor in our community. So sometimes we like to mess with people who come to do research, <laughs> which is funny, but it does get confusing sometimes. So James Mooney, he has a collection. That's like the most notable collection of Cherokee stories forever. So I reference those a lot. 
but keeping in mind that I don't know that he was told truthful things all the time. And a lot of people say he wasn't. So again, mm. I think that's, that's what I'm interested in the values and how they translate more so than direct plot lines from some traditional stories. Well, that sounds fascinating. Let's take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle and with Carrie. And Carrie, I want to know what you are reading. I have finally, I hope, gotten a little wise about audiobooks. When the weather got cooler, I started getting the itch to pick up my crochet, which, Annette, that has been my quarantine hobby. Uh-huh. So I decided, I thought, you know, I'm going to get an audiobook from the library, but I have started looking at how long they are. <laughs> Rather than being saddled with a 25-hour book that is going to take me a very long time to finish. I found three hour book. It's actually a children's book. I think it's for probably grades like three to six. Catherine Applegate really needs to give us some props because we've been talking about a lot of Catherine Applegate books, but I recently listened to Crenshaw. Now, if you look at the cover of the book, Crenshaw, there is a little boy sitting on a bench and next to him is an enormous cat. What it is, is the story of a boy named Jackson, and he and his family are really struggling. His dad has MS, and as a result of this chronic condition, his dad is not able to work full time because, you know, he has days where he's fatigued, he can't walk very well. Basically, his family for the last several years have really been struggling. They've gone in and out of homelessness. Crenshaw is his imaginary friend. So at the part in the story where it begins, the family is on the cusp of losing their apartment. Crenshaw comes back into Jackson's life. Crenshaw originally appeared several years prior when the family was having to live in their minivan for several months. And so Crenshaw appeared at that earlier stage of that first experience of homelessness. And now Crenshaw has come back. And it's one of those stories where, I mean, it's just, it's, it's heavy, you know, like it's a heavy story. It was hard for me to to listen to because you hate to think about families having to go through this, but it was also a story of resilience and a child telling their parents, you need to tell me what's going on. Like, I can't handle all this uncertainty. I need to be part of this conversation. So I felt like it was a heavy book, but ultimately it had some good thematic elements that I think are important for kids to hear, that they have agency. If we do it in a way that's sensitive to their needs, kids can handle a lot of information. They need to be told things in a sensitive way so that they can process and learn how to cope and develop some of those skills. So it was quick and and it had a cat in it, an imaginary (laughs) cat. So what's not to like? So what is Crenshaw's role? Like is the boy telling these things to the cat? Okay, so when the cat reappears now, Jackson is actually very angry (laughs) that Crenshaw has returned because he's like, what are you doing here? You're an imaginary friend. What are you doing here? So because Jackson is older, I I think he feels a little bit 
I don't know if the word is a shame, but a little bit like, hey, I'm older. Why are you here? I'm too mature to need an imaginary friend. So I think that Crenshaw acts as his coping mechanism, his conscience to help him adjust and also have the ability to speak the truth to his parents. His parents, I think, are trying to make things seem not as bad. But the problem is that Jackson knows how bad it is. His family, they're having these yard sales to try to get money. And he sees his dad having to use his cane more and more. I think Crenshaw serves as a way for Jackson to have the confidence mm. to speak truth to what his parents, you know, they're, they're not bad parents. They're trying to protect him out of love, but he needs the truth. So it was a good book. Like I said, because it was heavy, I, I didn't give it five stars. And I guess the thing was like at the end of it, things aren't dire, you know, so there is some hopefulness, but I've been talking a lot about Catherine Applegate books and in comparison, like some of her other books feel like, okay, you know, there's this sense of victory, I guess. And this book ends where things are steady, but it's not like everything's wrapped up perfectly in in a nice bow, which certainly this is more realistic, but I was needing nice bow. (laughs) I think it's more a reflection of what I needed as a reader than what she did as a writer, if that makes any sense at all. Mm -hmm. Well, Annette, what have you been reading? Well, I have been trying to balance, as we were talking about earlier, what I'm reading for class, which is usually rereading for class, and then personally. So personally, I just finished Kelly Jo Ford's Crooked Hallelujah, which is set in the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. It's a family saga specifically, though, about a couple generations of Cherokee women really just making their way through life and dealing with the complications of culture and living in America. So it's set, it's 1974 is when it starts and it goes through the 1980s. The first generation looks at these women's roles within the Holiness Church in this rural part of Oklahoma and how that ebbs and flows with Cherokee culture and then how these women transition out of that and continue to make their way through life. So I I finished that recently. And then right now what I'm reading personally has been some shorter literature. So on my bedside table right now are two books of poetry, actually. One's a collection that's edited by Joy Harjo that has gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of weeks. When the light of the world was subdued, our songs came through. It's the Norton Anthology for Native Nations Poetry. And I actually had seen some publicity on it. I think Oprah held it up in a picture, so it's (laughs) really important. But, you know, I will take a piece of that each day. And then I just picked up from my local bookstore... Horsepower by Joy Priest, her collection of poetry, and I'm reading that as well. But I'm teaching right now. I teach my Standard English 2 class, City of Saints and Thieves by Natalie Coward Anderson. This is, was her first novel. She's got another one out. But it's actually set in the Congo in a fictional town, but the the main protagonist is a teenage girl who is orphaned. 
She has a sister who's in an orphanage, but the, the protagonist is on her own and joins a gang and is on the search to find out what happened to her parents and take care of her sister in the process. So the author actually worked with refugees in the Congo, so is relying on that experience with those interviews that she used to do with those families. And the students really like it because it's a mystery and it moves quickly and it has teenage protagonists. And then my author's (laughs) English class is reading Americana, which I love Americana. I would read it over and over again by Adiche. That book is about the, the complex experience of African immigrants in the United States and how constructs of American identity and cultural identity clash and expectations of immigrants. And it's also this love story. So there's a lot going on with Americana. And then the final book that I am rereading <laughs> for my AP Lit class is God of Small Things by Arunda Hati Roy, uh, which is just so beautiful. It's just every page is packed with imagery. And then she uses language in such unique ways because the main characters, these twins, have kind of made up their own language and way of understanding the world. And it's set in India and deals with the issue of love laws and the caste system. So it is so rich that I actually, and I've taught it for a couple of years now, but I went into my AP class the other day and I looked at him and I said, we're going to slow down. So we're going to read a lot of this together because I send them home and say, hey, read several chapters of God of Small Things and we'll come back in an hour and a half and talk about it. That's impossible Mm -hmm. because it is such a well-crafted, deep, rich narrative that involves like a, a culture that my students are very unfamiliar with. So there's all of that to grapple with on top of the symbolism and the imagery and just, I'm such a nerd about stuff like play with syntax. It's just brilliant in God of Small Things. So it's one of my favorite. I love that all those books are so diverse, all the ones that you're teaching. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's great. So Amy, what have you been up to? Well, you know, it has been a long week, (laughs) y'all. It's been a long (laughs) week. So I needed something funny. So I started listening on audiobook to a book called Calypso by David Sedaris. And Mm. this, I believe, is his most recent collection of essays. It was published in 2018. And probably a lot of people are familiar in some way with David Sedaris. He's a humorist and an essayist, and he got his start with a few of his essays being broadcast on NPR, I think specifically on a show they have called This American Life. And he now has, I think, around 10 collections um, of essays out. And his books are something that I often turn to when I need a break between heavy books or maybe just heaviness in life. I've read most of them. They're usually fun, but he does have a biting humor that he often turns on himself. But occasionally he also turns it on other people, too. So I haven't been a fan of all of his books. There was one in particular that I disliked because I thought it bordered on being mean-spirited about some of his family members. But in this book, Calypso, I think he redeems that somewhat. So Sedaris is one of six children, and he's written quite a bit about his childhood. 
And one of his sisters committed suicide in 2013. And sometime after that, the whole family, all the brothers and sisters and his living parent, his father, decide to retreat on a family vacation at the beach on the coast of North Carolina. I think it's called Emerald Isle. And it was a place that when they were children, the whole family would go on vacations there. And while they're there, Sedaris and his husband decide to buy a beach house. It can be a place where his whole family can take vacations, spend holidays, and in the process, they get to know each other again. So there are parts of this book that are laugh out loud funny to me, but there are also parts that are very touching, especially about Sedaris's coming to know his elderly father in a different way. In past books, he talks a lot about the hard relationship that he's had over the years with his father for many reasons, but one of them including that Sedaris is gay. But as his father ages, he changes and Sedaris has to decide if he can forgive and embrace this new version of his father. So I'm about halfway through this book and I'm loving it. It's becoming, I think, one of my new favorite Sedaris books. Like I said, I'm listening to this on audiobook. Sedaris narrates it, which he often does with his own books, and he has a very unique voice. And because this is humor, he knows where to pause, where to put the emphasis for the laugh. There are parts in this audiobook where it is live at a location and he's performing a reading of an essay in front of an audience. So, you know, you have some where he's reading it in a studio and others that are live. And so that's an interesting listening experience. This audiobook won a Grammy actually in 2019 for Best Spoken Word Album. I highly recommend it if you need a good laugh right now, but also maybe a little tenderness too. You you might give this book a try. I just want to mention briefly a book that I've read almost the whole thing in a day. It's called A Kind of Freedom by Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. And Sexton writes about three generations of a Black Creole family in her native New Orleans starting during the Jim Crow era during World War II up to 2010. And this was a compulsively readable book. It's a family drama that focuses on how class and racism can affect each generation in this family and about how those everyday battles with race and class can pull a family down a little bit every generation, how even a small stumble can have a domino reaction within the family. And I would highly recommend that book too. It was long listed for the National Book Award in 2017. I'm impressed, Amy, that you were able to finish a book in a day. I feel like this week for me has been like the early part of the pandemic where I just couldn't concentrate on anything. 2020 in some ways has been the hardest year for me to consistently read a book because I feel like I need to check my phone and see what's happening. So kudos for being able to maintain concentration for longer than 30 seconds. Well, sometimes I'm like what you're saying. Other times I'm like an ostrich, but that sand is a book. And so (laughs) if I just stick my head in that book and read, I can forget about what might be going on outside. All right. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Annette her top five. We are back with Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle, and we're going to be asking her her top five. Number one, uh, November is National Native American History Month, and it feels like Native American writers are having a moment in literature right now. So Rebecca Roanhorse is emerging as a force in science fiction and fantasy. Tommy Orange received critical acclaim for his novel, There, There. 
And Joy Harjo is the poet laureate of the United States, which you mentioned reading some of her uh, poetry. Obviously, each writer is different, but what is the top thing that you think writers of Native American background bring to the attention of readers that we need to hear? I think in general, uh, Native writers bring a historical and cultural perspective that allows us, specifically as Americans, but maybe just humans in general, to look at issues of importance from a different angle, from an angle of cultural values that may help us understand the way the world works and how it can work in different ways. So what does the Native value system and worldview say about, for example, how we handle COVID in America or what leadership should look like in America? And I think that the worldviews that these authors that you mentioned and, and other Native authors bring help us to really step outside some very typical approaches that we take and think about problems and solutions from different angles. Your family has an interesting history. You alluded a little bit to that earlier. Tell us a little bit about your grandfather and one of the top intriguing <laughs> facts about him. Yeah, so my grandfather, Osley Bird Sanuk, my father's father, was a two-term principal chief of the Eastern Band, also a heavyweight wrestling champion of the world. So he wrestled under the name the Cherokee Chief, and there are so many tall tales about him. But he was also just a really savvy businessman and political leader and really helped our tribe progress in terms of economic development under his leadership. When he was a wrestler, did he travel around the country? Yes, absolutely. Doing that? He, he actually got started when he was working on the railroads around Chicago. But as a professional, he even wrestled in Madison Square Garden. So he, oh, wow. he went everywhere. So uh, I have a friend who lives in North Carolina, and he regularly posts photos from his runs. And I'm always envious <laughs> of the beautiful vistas that he gets to see regularly when he exercises. So you are an avid mountain and road bike rider. So is there a top place or even a couple top places where you like to bike in North Carolina? Uh, absolutely. I'm actually sitting here in my bike shorts because <laughs> as soon as we get off this call, I'm getting on the bike. My favorite trail system, the one that actually got me into mountain biking, is Fire Mountain Trail System in Cherokee, North Carolina. It's about three and a half years old now. But it is a beautiful, really well done trail system, about 10 and a half miles worth of trails here in the Smoky Mountains in Cherokees. It's my home trail system, so I go there all the time. But I'm fortunate living in Western North Carolina that there are some really beautiful trail systems. And then road biking, you can't go wrong with parkway rides or riding into the national park. So sometimes road names and landmark names really give you a flavor of a location. So what is the top unusual name of a place near you that gives people a feel for where you live in North Carolina? <laughs> One of my favorite, because again, I love irony, 
is that I, okay, I teach at Swain County High School and we are located on the road to nowhere. (laughs) I mean, there's a sign that was actually kind of controversial when I put up that says Swain County High School. And then below it, it says road to nowhere. So (laughs) the reason why it's called the road to nowhere is because when the TVA came in and flooded the Fontana community for hydroelectricity to support the war effort, they had promised to build a road so that families could access cemeteries that now you couldn't access because it had been flooded. They started the road, but then you go up and it just ends in a tunnel. And that's it. it and so it has always been known as the road to nowhere. I've, I've loved that name, one, because it, there is that historical context for it. But then there's all this symbolism <laughs> behind it with like, how you deal with the federal government. And then it's sadly funny that our, our school is located on that road. Um, so like if someone was going to send a letter to the school, would the road to nowhere be in the address? No, we put Fontana Road because, you know, we don't want to, <laughs> you know, we don't want to admit that really everybody calls it the road to nowhere there. <laughs> no one calls I, it Fontana so. Road. Like that seems like it would be a perfect opportunity for the bookstore to sell like t-shirts. <laughs> Has anybody ever done that? You know, we really need to take more advantage of that. No, people are so angry over it. I think we need to get to the humor aspect. Of it. Yeah. So this is probably a, a dangerous question to ask and could be a long answer, but I also teach high school English. So I'm curious about this. What is your top favorite language art slash literature concept to teach to students and why? Syntax. I think that that seems about as nerdy as you can get. So we don't do canned programs at Swain County High School because we have always had, if I do say so myself, a phenomenal English department that has had teachers who have advanced degrees and are writers. I teach right next door to a poet who is fantastic, Ben Cutler. So we don't do canned programs. But the one exception we have made is for this program called Daily Grammar Practice because we saw many years ago that our students were really struggling with language scores like on the ACT or SAT. So we decided that we were going to embed the study of language, grammar and whatnot, every single day of class for all of our grades. And we have seen huge jumps in scores and understanding for our students because it's daily mostly. Because I was opposed to it. When I grew up, we didn't diagram sentences and things like that. I thought that was ridiculous. But one of the things I've seen through this program and teaching students what language means is how you can use language to be persuasive and specifically how you can use syntax to be persuasive and cause that feeling. I was talking earlier about how reading should be this physical process. And so if you really get down to the nitty gritty of syntax and how you change syntax throughout a passage, that's what makes language physical. So that's where I am right now. And that's 
I think what my students roll their eyes at the most right now, probably. (laughs) So for our non-English wonks, Mm -hmm. (laughs) can you explain what syntax is? Yeah, syntax is literally how a sentence is constructed. It is how many words are in a sentence. It is the punctuation in a sentence, whether it's a simple sentence or a complex sentence. So how it lays on the page. It really does change how somebody reads text. Something simple that I I don't think most people really think about. I did learn how to diagram sentences when I was in fifth grade. I remember it distinctly. I had this elementary school teacher who taught us how to do it. I'm one of those strange people who actually liked diagramming sentences. It was sort of like this little puzzle and I enjoyed it. I found it actually kind of interesting which students like it. Because sometimes it's also students who don't like other aspects of English class, but really like that. And I guess it's just the way their their brain functions and they like that puzzle of it. I I think there's so many students that get frustrated with English because it seems very subjective. Mm -hmm. Whereas with sentence diagramming, I think that's more of an objective part of it. Well, Annette, thank you so much for sharing your Sunday morning with us. We appreciate learning about you and your experiences and for sharing your novel with us. Okay. I really enjoyed being here. I feel like I was chatting with friends and I've never met you before. (laughs) So that that was great. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.